Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read here in just a moment from Matthew 6, starting at verse 19. But Matthew isn't um, considered one of the wisdom literature books of the Bible. Um, but Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has a lot of similarity to wisdom-style literature. You know, oftentimes in the New Testament, there's these long, drawn, you know, the, the epistles, and sometimes in the Gospel of John, there's these long, drawn-out ar- um, arguments and, and long d- uh, dialogues that, that happen. But in the Sermon on the Mount, there's these short, kind of punchy statements, and sometimes they're disconnected to the ones um, before it uh, in, in terms of context, since it's a lot like Proverbs. So this morning, we're going to be uh, reading from, starting at verse 19, in, in Matthew chapter 6. If you want to follow along in your Bible or on the screen, um, I'm going to start. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or or about your body, what you will wear, Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any one of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Scott. Good morning. Uh, On September 30th, 2003, a guy by the name of Antoine Yates checks himself into an emergency room in Harlem, New York, with these giant gashes across his arm and his leg. Yates explained to the hospital staff there that his own pet, his pit bull, had kind of randomly turned on him that day and had begun attacking him, leading to these major wounds that brought him to the emergency room. But the the medical staff, as they heard his explanation, began to grow a little bit suspicious. 
Because what he had on him were not just gashes, they were bite marks, which was in line with his story, but the bite marks seemed to be a lot larger than those that a pit bull would leave on a person. And a few days later, a police officer was actually sent to Yates' apartment uh, while Yates was gone, and he goes up to the door and knocked on the door, and then he heard these large growling sounds coming from the other side of the door. Large enough that he decided it was probably best to not try to break that door open. And so what they did actually is they went into the apartment next to Antoine Yates' and they drilled holes in the walls and then they ran a camera line through those holes so that they could see into the apartment. And what they found on the monitor, on the screen there as the camera went in the apartment was a 425 pound tiger named Ming living in Antoine Yates' apartment. And it turned out that that tiger had been there actually for a very long time, that Yates had adopted this tiger or stolen or something, this tiger, when he was a small cub and had raised him in the apartment for years. It was actually kind of somewhat of like an open secret in the apartment complex where he lived. A lot of people, you know, were a little suspicious of the fact that he was bringing home 20 pounds of raw chicken meat every day. And, and, and eventually the, the police officers found their way in there. They had to rappel a guy down from the side of the apartment to shoot tranquilizer darts into the window to put Ming down temporarily. And then it took six officers to be able to pull that tiger down the apartment steps. What had happened actually was that on September 30th, Yates had found this stray cat and he decided that he wanted to adopt that cat and bring it home to be a big happy family with Ming and himself and also the five and a half foot alligator that Yates had in another bedroom. But it turns out Ming didn't really see this, uh, this new cat as a brother as much as he saw him as a snack. And so as soon as he brought him in the house, the tiger started chasing this cat around. And when Yates tried to kind of stop him and throw himself in the way, Ming turned on him and began attacking him. From time to time, you'll hear stories kind of like the story of Ming and Yates, these weird, random, bizarre tales of someone who has secretly for years owned some wild animal in their house, um, some large, exotic animal that they're not supposed to have, but that they've kept around for some time. And inevitably, almost always, there comes a point where that animal turns on the owner and attacks them, sometimes even killing them. I always find it interesting, the way the owners uh, respond, how surprised they always seem when their tiger attacks them, or when their pet grizzly bear attacks them, um, as if that's not what these things are going to do. These, these animals that are, by their very nature, wild. These animals that it is in them, it is intrinsic to who they are to attack. But the owners always seem to be so surprised. There's, there always seems to be this thing in them that thinks, no, but it won't happen to me, though. Uh, this one's kind of different because I know this animal. We're friends. I've raised this animal from the time it was little, and, and I'm the owner, and I'm the master, and I'm in charge here. And yet it does not take much, just one little instant for everything to turn, and all of a sudden, the one who was in charge, the one who had all the power, no longer has power. The Bible, when it talks about money, sort of talks about it like, like a 425-pound tiger living inside all of our homes. And that is, 
that tigers in and of themselves, they're not evil. Tigers are not intrinsically immoral or bad or evil, but they are intrinsically dangerous. And that's the same with money. Money in and of itself is not bad. It's not bad to have money. Money is not intrinsically evil. Money is, according to the scriptures, money is intrinsically dangerous. And yet there seems to be this belief in all of us that things will be different than me. It's not going to control me like it might control others. I know it. I'm in charge of it. I'm the master here, and it won't own me like it does with so many other people. Uh, Tim Keller, who just passed away recently, the, the author and pastor from New York, I heard him sharing a message about this, and, and he, uh, he spoke out of Luke 12, 15, quotes Jesus in that verse where Jesus says these words, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And the question Keller asks in this message is, why does Jesus say watch out and be on your guard against greed specifically? Like, why don't you ever see Jesus say, watch out and be on your guard against adultery? The answer he gives is because, well, you pretty much always know when you're committing adultery. Like, that's nothing that, like, sneaks up on you. You know that this person is not your spouse, right? But, but greed is different. Greed is something that tends to sneak up on us. Greed is something that tends to get the better of us sometimes without us realizing. It's the really weird thing is that greed is something we all agree on. Like everyone would say greed is a bad thing. Everyone would say there is such a thing as wanting too much, as hoarding to yourself too much, and yet almost no one would say that they themselves do that they themselves are greedy. Keller goes on to say in his message, actually, that over the course of his ministry, his many-year ministry, he had many people come to him and confess adultery, that they were guilty of sexual sin. But, he said, and this was towards the end of his ministry, he said, I am still waiting for someone to come and confess to me that they're greedy. It just doesn't happen. That's the way it works. And so he says it is probably best to assume when Jesus speaks to us about money that he's not speaking to someone else, that there's a good chance, since greedy people never think they're greedy, there's a good chance Jesus might be speaking to me. I think it is the tendency a lot to, to believe that when, when the Bible talks about money and being careful about riches and those kinds of things, to think that Jesus is talking about like the super rich or the super worldly. Jesus is talking about, you know, millionaire CEOs who put profits over the welfare of their employees. Or, or he's talking about uh, professional athletes who are making $22 million a year, but instead they want $23 million a year because that's not enough. That's who Jesus is talking to when he speaks about these things. But if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and think about who Jesus' audience is here, do you know who he's talking to when he says these words? He's talking to primarily poor people living day to day who really want to follow him. Which means that Jesus' words in Matthew 6 are not a lecture against being rich. There's nobody rich in the audience to hear that lecture. That's not what he's talking about. They are a gentle warning about the ability for money to grab a hold of our hearts regardless of our financial situation. 
regardless of our net worth or our yearly income. And what I believe Jesus is trying to offer to me today and to you today through this passage is real wisdom about life. Real wisdom about how life works best. When Jesus comes to talk to us about money, he's not trying to steal your joy. He's not trying to make things hard or worse for us. He is trying to offer us a better way, a more enjoyable life. And I hope we hear that as we read these words. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. This is the main message of this whole text, summed up in those two verses. Don't store up treasures for yourself on earth, but instead store up treasures for yourself in heaven. And by storing up treasures for yourself in heaven, what Jesus means, if you look at kind of other places in the Bible where it talks about this, is he means use your money, use your financial resources to help others, to give to the poor to give to the, the mission of God's kingdom, to give to the church, to give to brothers and sisters in your church who are in need. Store up your treasure there, invest there. And right out of the gate, what we see is that Jesus is truly seeking to impart wisdom to us. Jesus is not against saving up money. Jesus is not against investing your money. Jesus is against bad investment. That's what he's against. And according to Jesus, to put all your eggs in this basket, to save up all of your money here, to store all of your treasure and build up all your positions here, he says, is just a bad investment. It's not wise. And as we read through the text, it, it looks like, as I, as I read through the rest of these, I see three different reasons that Jesus gives why it is a bad investment to store up your treasure here on earth. First one is this, it is better to store your treasure in heaven because enjoyment of earthly treasure won't last. Jesus says that we basically have two options when it comes to our valuables. We can accumulate valuable things for ourselves here or we can accumulate valuable things for ourselves in the next life. We can accumulate treasure in heaven. And the precise nature of what this treasure is, I'll admit to you, I don't know. I don't know exactly what he means by that. There are a number of texts in the Bible, in the New Testament, that talk about rewards that we will be able to gain in heaven based on our behavior, based on the way we work and operate here, that there are rewards we can receive. And I don't know exactly what those things are. I tend to lean with C.S. Lewis and others who believes that the reward we get has something to do with a greater capacity to enjoy God and his presence and to enjoy his delight in us since that's what makes heaven heaven is God and his presence. That's what makes it good, is Jesus and his being with us. And so it would seem that the rewards that we are seeking, that the treasure we seek has something to do with experiencing more of that here or more of that in that lifetime. What we do know about this treasure is that it is a treasure that you and I will get to enjoy for a billion years and then some. And this is Jesus' point that when we work and slave and struggle 
to accumulate for ourselves more and more and more stuff here on earth. We might get to enjoy that, but that the enjoyment of that will come in a very short window. That eventually, all of it fades. It either gets stolen, he says, by thieves, or it ends up breaking down, or natural disaster comes and tears it down, or we get, it gets lost in a bad investment or in an unlucky business adventure, or if it does not fade, I will fade. And there will be a point at which, well, even if it lasts, that I do not, and so I no longer get to enjoy it. And what Jesus says is, therefore, it is a no-brainer that I would instead invest my money that I would invest my treasure and my finances in a place where I will get to experience it long term, where I will get to enjoy it for much longer than I would here. He continues in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? This is kind of an odd little section. The first part we get, we've heard before. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But this second little part, 22 and 23, Jesus starts talking about eyes and darkness and how it covers your body and all those things. There's some who've said this is one of the harder little sections in Matthew's gospel. What is Jesus doing? Is he changing the subject all of a sudden? What does eyes have to do with any of these things? But what Jesus is actually doing here is he's employing like a, a Jewish figure of speech that they would have gotten and understood, this idea of a bad eye was an eye that looked with envy upon other things. Uh, what we might call like an evil eye, the evil eye, to look with covetousness and to want more and more for yourself. In fact, there are some places in the Gospels where this word bad eye comes up in the Greek and, and our translators just translate it jealousy because that's what it means. And so this is what Jesus is describing. If you have the kind of eye, that is if you have the kind of mindset that is constantly fixed, and focused on how can I get more, on how can I make sure that I have enough, on how can I save up and gather to myself more things. He says that kind of eye fills the body with darkness. That kind of thinking throws my whole life off course. Why is that? Because of what he says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Wherever the things are that you have the most affection for, that you are most fond of, that you care most about, that's where your heart is going to go. That's the direction that you will be led. And this is the second reason why it is better, always better, to store up our treasure in heaven. Number two, because the love of earthly treasure leads our hearts away from God. And this is also the biggest reason why we store up treasure in heaven. It's one that the Bible stresses repeatedly over and over again. There's this very odd prayer in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, where the writer says to God, Dear Lord, please give me neither poverty, which makes sense. Many of us have probably prayed something along those lines. Lord, please don't let me be broke. Lord, please help me pay this bill. Lord, please help me afford this. He says, give me neither poverty, and then he says this, or wealth. Don't give me riches either, Lord. And that's kind of an interesting 
prayer. He, he goes on to explain in the very next verse this, because if I am poor, then I will be tempted to steal and so profane your name, Proverbs 30, verse 9. But he also says, and if I am rich, then I will deny you, saying, who is the Lord? If I have too much, he says, I, I know what will happen. If I have too much, then I'll, I'll be tempted to start thinking I don't need you anymore. I'll be tempted to think that, that I'm in control of everything, that I've got everything taken care of. So, Lord, please don't give me too much. Jesus himself says in Mark 10, 23, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Just a couple verses comes the famous verse that many of us all know. No, in fact, he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And it's funny how many of us know that verse. Like that's, that's a verse probably all of us know and how tempted I know I feel in my own heart to go, yeah, but I think I might give it a shot anyway. I think I might try to have both. I think, I think I'm different. I'm Antoine Yates. I can handle this and, and be fine. And, and again, Jesus is not saying it is impossible that riches makes you just not able to be there. He's just saying recognize that it's dangerous. What I think is really scary about money, as the Bible describes it, is not just that it has the ability to prevent a person from believing in Jesus or to prevent a person from loving Jesus. The Bible says it actually has the ability to take someone who loves and believes in Jesus and to slowly turn their heart away from him too. This is how Paul describes it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Over and over again, I had to cut. There are so many texts that seem to talk like this and this warning against what money can do to your heart. The Bible says this over and over again. Why? Well, Jesus explains to us in Matthew 6, 24, the very next verse, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The reason it can be so hard, the reason money can be so dangerous, and we have to be cautious, and possessions we have to be cautious about is because Jesus says money is a jealous master that does not share its servants. And if you devote yourself to getting more and more of it, you will not be able to devote yourself to God. And it's not an issue of time. It's not because you'll be too busy chasing money to chase God. It's a matter of the heart because money has a way of occupying our mind and our affections like few things do. And so it's important for us to be able to see the truth of that. And, and here's where maybe if you're like me, you may find yourself thinking, yeah, but, but I'm not thinking about money because I want to get rich. I'm not 
focusing on money because I want to buy like three beach houses or because I want a, a, a nicer and nicer car or because I want to just travel the world after I retire early. That's not my thinking. That's not my mindset. I, I'm just trying to figure out how to have enough. I just want to have enough that someday I can retire. I want to have enough that I can pay for my kids' college. I just want to make sure that I'm making ends meet. If I don't think about my future, if I don't plan for my future, if I don't focus on those things, then who will? And Jesus gives the answer to that in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And he'll go on to say, not only does God take care of the birds, but he takes care of the flowers of the fields who do not labor or spin, and yet they're dressed more beautifully than King Solomon was. The answer Jesus gives, who will, who will look out for me? Who will take care of my future? He says is God, that God can and will, that we have a good father who takes care of birds and he takes care of flowers. And Jesus says, you know this to be true. You know that you're more important than birds, right? You know that God loves you as his children more than he loves flowers. And if he is willing to take care of them and provide for them, you can know that he is willing and ready to take care of you and provide for you. I think the bird illustration is actually even kind of interesting because birds do still work, right? Birds don't just sit lazily in their nest expecting God to drop worms in their mouth at any moment. They still work. They still go out and, and do what is necessary. Jesus isn't advocating for a lazy foolishness that just kind of waits around for God to, to provide things. No, but, but birds, they will work. What birds don't do, though, is they don't fret. They don't worry. And they don't got a lot of stuff stored up for the future, and yet they, they are able to just kind of go on knowing that they will survive. And this is what Jesus is trying to speak to us, the third reason why. It is better to invest in the treasures and in the things of heaven is because of this. Number three, focus on earthly treasure steals our joy and increases anxiety. So here Jesus tells us that the benefits of storing up heavenly treasure is not just restricted to heaven. He's not just saying, hey, if you'll just wait and if you'll store up your stuff in heaven, you'll have a better life then. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be really bad and terrible now, but it'll be better then. No, actually, Jesus says, actually, your life is better now if you'll entrust me with these things. If you'll entrust your father with these things and fix your eyes and your gaze on heaven. We, we on staff all got to choose our text for this summer. It just had to be something in the area of wisdom. We could choose whatever topic and whatever text we wanted so confession time, there's a reason I, I chose this text. And that was because I, I realized as I was reading through it one day how much I needed this text. There's this weird phenomenon I've noticed with myself. And that is over the last couple of years, I've realized that I am currently, I'm not making a ton of money, but I am currently making more money than at any other point in my life. 
far more money than when I first got out of college at 23, 24 years old and started working a full-time job. I'm making way more than that in the last couple of years, and yet I also realized this about myself, that I have been far more worried about money over the last couple of years of my life than at any point in my life. And that seemed really strange to me and so counterintuitive because what I find myself when I'm worrying, what I'm thinking about is I need more and yet having more has not solved that problem for me. Um, and, and, and the more I, I look and read and study, it seems like I'm probably not alone in this. Several years ago, Time Magazine did a report on sleep in America and how so many Americans are not getting enough sleep. And it's cited as uh, the number one reason for sleeplessness amongst Americans was financial stress. That we stay up at night thinking about whether or not we have enough or whether or not we're going to have enough, which is fascinating. That we live in, in probably what is probably the most prosperous nation or culture ever in history. A place where we have access to lots where we have plenty, and yet what studies show is that most of us struggle to sleep because we worry whether we'll have enough. It, it sounds to me a lot like Ecclesiastes 5.12, which says this, the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. And for me, I'll just be honest, I could justify all of my worry and anxiety over these things because, again, I wasn't trying to think about how I could get bigger houses. I wasn't sitting there worrying about, God, how can I get the nicest car? I just need you to help me get the nicest car. No, I was, I was thinking about, like, good things. I was thinking about how I could make sure to pay for my kids' college. I was, I was trying to think about how I could have enough that one day I'll be able to like retire and step away without being a burden to my kids or to others and those things, that, which I think are okay things to think about. Hear me, I don't want you to hear that we, we shouldn't ever think about these things. The Bible actually says that we ought to work hard and be able to provide for ourselves. 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 12, and 1 Timothy 5 through 8, the Bible actually says it's okay to think and plan for your future. Proverbs 6, the writer says, watch the ant, how he works hard in summer to store up enough for winter. You be like that, save up. It's okay to plan for the future. It's okay to think for the future. I think it is okay for, for us to save for the future. What was not okay, what I've been convicted about, was to worry about it in the manner that I did to let finances consume my mind like they did because when I worry about my stuff and whether I will have enough, it takes my eyes off of my heavenly father and fixes it on the stuff of this earth. Because when I worry, it makes me stingy. And I can tell you personally how often a need arises or an opportunity to give and my first gut instinct is to go, I can't give to that. I'm, I'm barely taking care of things on my end. I'm barely making ends meet as it, as it is. How can I afford to give to those things when I find myself worrying about providing for myself, when I find myself worrying about having enough, it betrays a lack of trust in God's ability to provide for me. And it places all of that on me. This kind of worry, even when we're worrying about good things, Jesus is talking to his audience about very basic things, where they're gonna get their next meal, how they're gonna have enough clothes to eat. That kind of worry, he says, is not fitting for the children of God, for people 
who know that there is a God who loves them. Look what he says down in verse 31. So don't worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says here, it is Gentiles. That is, pagans, those who don't know God, they're the kinds of people who worry and run around scrambling around trying to make sure they have enough for themselves. And that makes sense. Because as far as they're concerned, no one else is going to look after them. But he says, for us, we know better. We know that we have a good father who is able, and not just able, but willing loves to look after and take care of his children. So we are freed up to focus on bigger things. We are freed up to focus on kingdom things, to be generous and to serve the needs of the church and to serve the needs of others and to serve the mission of God because we know that God will provide what we need. Now, we might not always know how. Jesus does not promise that when we give, that everything will always go smoothly and we'll always know exactly where everything's coming from and there will never be moments of a little bit of stress or fear, which I know we don't like, but he does promise that God will take care of us and that because of that, we, we can go forward in peace and in hope. I love the words of Corey Tin Boom. She says this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And if you know Corey Tinboom, you know she's the author of The Hiding Place who spent a couple years in a Nazi concentration camp because of her helping the Jewish people during the Holocaust. And so if there's anyone who knows something about an unknown future, it's Corey Tinboom. But she says she can face an unknown future when she has a known God. I want that kind of life. I want a life of trust. I want a life that is able to live in joy and contentment and is able to sleep in peace at night, knowing that God is enough to take care of me. I wanna be able to take Jesus at his word when he says, trust me, trust me, this is better. It is better to invest in the things of heaven than it is on earth. So what do we do? What do we do with these things? Here's the really weird thing. Money might be like a 425-pound tiger, but it's like a 425-pound tiger that all of us are forced to handle in this life. All of us are going to have to deal with money at some point. It's going to come through our hands. We're going to work jobs and get paid and use that to pay for things. All of us have to deal with money. And again, there's nothing evil or wrong about money. It's just important that we train our hearts and we train our lives in ways to be able to use it properly. So how do we do that? Practically, what does God expect of us? Is God asking you to sell everything and just get rid of money completely? to sell everything and give it away to the poor and, and, and then go and follow him as he does to the rich young ruler? Maybe. I mean, Jesus has done that in the past with some of his people, so it's not outside the realm of possibility, but more than likely not. More than likely, that is not what Jesus is calling you to do today. So is, is Jesus saying by don't store up treasures on earth that I can't ever save anything up, that I should just have enough to kind of pay the bills and everything else I should give away? I, I don't think so. 
Again, Proverbs 6 tells us it is wise and it is good to save up to make sure we have enough for the future. But I do think, I do think that we need to be aware, church, that we live in a culture today that is sick with greed, that is consumed with greed. And so we probably need to be careful about letting the world's definition of enough, make sure you have enough to retire on, make sure you have enough to pay for college, make sure you have a, enough to provide for your family. We have to be wary of letting the world's definition of enough be our definition. To be careful that we do not fall into the trap of chasing what, what the world says is right and what the world says is good. I, I don't think that we have to give up everything to follow him. I think it's okay to have enough. And, and that leads to the other question, well, how much is enough? And how much is too much? How do I know if I've got too much money? How do I know if I'm being too greedy? What am I supposed to have? Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't give us specific answers on that. Man, I wish it did. It would be so much easier to just know. I can make this much, I can keep this much, and that's kind of the line. But the Bible doesn't give those kinds of answers because numbers is not what the Bible is about. It's not what it's after. Bible, Jesus, Father, is after our hearts more than he is our checkbooks, more than he is our bank accounts. There's this book called True Riches, what Jesus really said about money in our hearts. It's by John Cortinez and Gregory Balmer, and I would recommend it to you if it's something you're interested in kind of learning more about this. They offer some great wisdom and advice on what we do with finances and what we do with finances in light of what Jesus says about finances. And, and they say in that book early on that the better question is not how much should I keep or how much should I give or how much am I allowed to make. The better question is what are my finances doing to my heart? That's the more important one to deal with. Which is why, by the way, I cannot pull here, pull up into the parking lot on Sunday morning and make any sort of judgments about you by the car that you drive. I can't pull up and go, well, I can't believe they drive that. Clearly they don't love the Lord because if so, they would drive as crappy a car as I have. That's how you know you really love God, right? No. That's, that's, not, that's not how the Bible describes things. The truth of the matter is I can drive a worse car than you and have a greedier heart than you. I can live in a smaller house than you and have a heart that is just as consumed or more so with the things of this earth and with trying to acquire more. It's not about the size of my house or, or, or the fanciness of my car or those kinds of things. It's about what is going on here. It's about whether or not my treasure is ultimately there, if this is what I value and what I'm after, or whether it's here. And so what do we do? I think probably the best advice I've found on this comes from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6. We read that chapter earlier when Paul says that those who want to be rich fall into a trap. Well, later on in the passage, he actually talks to people who are rich, and he gives kind of instructions for them. To those who have plenty, which, let's be honest, we may not be like filthy rich, but, but relatively speaking, compared to most of the world, compared to most of history, you and I have plenty. And so I think these words are great advice to us. He says this in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God 
who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So first bit of advice, do not put your hope or your trust in the things of this world, in your money. And here's where we gotta be really honest with ourselves and really honest with others because it's really easy to say, no, 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 I trust God. I don't trust money. That's not what I put my hope in. Now, if I don't have enough, I get really worry, worried and I kind of freak out a little bit, but I don't trust it. Yeah, no, 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 that's, that's a sign that I might be trusting it. Don't love money. I don't love money. I just really, really like it and want more of it. I got to be honest and, and ask myself, do I love money? Paul says, don't. Whatever it takes, be sure that your trust and your hope is not in the things that you have, but instead they are in God. And then he says in verse 18, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. One of the best ways to free my heart of money and its grip is to give it away, is to be generous with the things that God has given me. And I don't think that means give all of it away, but I think it means be ready, ready and willing to share with those in need, be ready and willing to give to God and his mission and his kingdom. And then he closes by saying this, that when you are giving, you are storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the coming age. That sounds just like what Jesus tells us, right? so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And this, I think, is the key. That when I do this, when I trust in God over my money, when I give to his kingdom, what I get is life that is truly life, the life that I was meant to live. The point of living simply is not for simplicity's sake. It is not just so I can feel better about myself. It is not just so I can worry less. The point of being a person who is generous is to break money's hold on my heart so that I am freed up to more deeply enjoy the God that I was made for. So that I can more deeply enjoy Jesus. And I believe, or at least I'm trying to believe, that to have him, even in poverty, is infinitely better than early retirement is infinitely better than vacation homes. That Jesus himself and knowing him is infinitely better than being able to eat out whenever I want to or being able to buy the shoes that my kids want whenever they want it. But to know God, the one you were made for, is true riches. That is to be rich. And that leads us actually into our time of communion today. Because that word, rich, is the way that Paul describes us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is speaking to the group there and, and to the Corinthians, and he's, he's pleading with them to be generous with their funds, to give their money to help others in need. And, and in that passage, as part of his motivation for generosity, he turns them and reminds them of the generosity of Jesus towards them. Here are his words, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 through 9. He says, now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. That is, excel in the act of generosity or of giving. I am not saying this as a command, rather by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. What does he mean by that? That Jesus became poor so that you might become rich. He means 
that Jesus, who was infinitely rich, who had access to all things in heaven, nothing that was not as at his disposal, gave all of that up to become a humble, homeless peasant and walk the earth and lay down everything, including his own life, to die for you and I so that, he says, you could become rich. And by rich, he means so that you could have God, so that you could have what you were made for. This is true riches. And if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, Paul says, you have all you need. Rich people can afford to be generous. And you, Paul says, are rich because you have more than you will ever need in your relationship with God. And if you're not, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if, if you've spent your life scrambling after more and more things, trying to get more, and you've found it to be unsatisfying, the good news is you can be rich too. That Jesus has made a way for true riches for you to, to know the God that you were made for by dying in your place for your sins. And so every Sunday we get together as a church and we celebrate that, the riches purchased for us by Jesus in giving up himself for us. And so this is Christ's body broken for us. Let's take together, brothers and sisters. This is Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's drink together. And now, let's join together in singing. <laughs>